edit that out too. See how quiet Sylvia's being? She's so good. Xander's being quiet. Chris Conrad's being quiet. Okay, you guys, up here I have a handful of copies of Romans. This is last week and also this week. Jenny wants a Romans. Uh, this is Romans, Romans. If you weren't here last week, or if you can't stand the fact that there were mistakes in it last week, I fixed all the mistakes. Oh, now they're all coming. So Romans is up here. Come and grab them. Xander, be, have, be happy. Tay-Tay, grab what you need. We don't want Okay. Oh, I, I knew I, I should have made more. I will make more. And as always, we will have every week, we'll be in this box every week. So we're almost sold out. Grab one more. Oh, yeah. oh. oh you guys can fight for it. I'll have more next week and every week. What? That room is gone. Yeah. Sorry. I should have made more. I, I, forgive me. Okay. So. Would you do me a favor and stop talking? There's so much I want to do today. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. They're gone. Okay. So I will have more Romans next week. So here's what we're going to do. I told you guys we're going to do one week at each book of the Bible, but as you might not have been surprised, Roman gets two, okay? Romans is just too good. So here's what I want you to think about. Last week, we looked at Romans at the highest level, right? We just kind of did this like 30,000 feet. I wanted you to see the structure of the thing, kind of this, this kind of three-part division throughout Romans, a number of things I wanted you to get. But today, we're going to go a little bit of a deeper dive. It's still a rush. It's still a mad, mad rush, but we're just going to look at the first section. We're going to look at the theology, I don't know if you guys are National Park fans, but I am. Kelly and I have been to several, but not as many as I want to. Um, there are some, like Zion, if you've ever been to Zion in Utah, or Yosemite. Some, in some ways, Zion is like a mini Yosemite or like Yosemite Junior, but like the Yosemite Valley or the, or the Zion Valley, it's possible to take like a bus up through the valley. And I want you to think of Romans basically 1 through 8 as something like the Valley of Yosemite National Park, okay? It is just filled with beauty, filled with treasure. And it's, what we're going to try to do here is I want to take you, I want to be your tour guide up through Yosemite Valley this morning. What that means is we're all in a bus, and I'm just going to point at things and say, hey, look for this right here. When you get to chapter one, I want you to notice this. When you get to chapter two, look over here. You're going to want to do this. But then your job is to get off the bus and then to go hike that peak, right? To go, if you're in Zion, I want you to go hike Angel's Landing, or I want you to go up through the Narrows. And so I'm just going to point things out. We're going to hit them and run, hit them and run, hit them and run. But if you will pay attention and take notes on this and kind of engage on this, um, then when you actually get off the bus and hike up the valley yourself, I think you'll have a little bit of a better sense of what it is you're looking for as you go, all right? DFP, how's that? Does that land for you? All right, Dan is my national park buddy. He's been to every park? All in the continental U.S. In the continental U.S. Like lots and lots and lots of national parks. So here's what we're going to do. Romans 1. It's going to be, we're going to fly back. We're just pointing to things as we go through, okay? Chapter 1, it begins, and it's not really theology. Well, there's a little bit of theology. But Paul, what he's going to do is he's going to say, I want to be with you in verse 11. I long to come and to be with you. I don't want you to be unawares that I plan to come, but I haven't been able to. I've been prevented. That's what we're saying about how the reason he writes this thing, he writes this letter, because he can't have the trip. It's good news for us that the trip doesn't happen because the non-trip 
produces the letter that is the treasure, okay? But that's all kind of opening introduction. When he starts to finally get into like really the gospel message, it's around verse 17, 18. So watch verse 17. He's going to say this. For in the gospel, this is like a thesis statement for the book. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written the righteous will live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk, which nobody's even ever read before. But that's his thesis statement. Romans 1.17 is like, that's the thesis, okay? So note that millions of things are going to flow out of that idea. And then he begins this case against mankind. So you could think of Romans, especially in chapters 1, 2, and into 3, as a prosecutor's statement. He's making the case that mankind is guilty before God. You might, you might summarize Romans like this. You need righteousness because you don't have it. In these first several chapters, he's making this blistering case against man. Okay? As he does, a few things to watch for. He's going to constantly be in, 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 uh, trading, interchanging. He's talking to Jews, then he's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to Jews, and then he's talking to Gentiles. And though that middle section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, is really about the Jewish problem, how does this stuff relate to Israel, the, the tension, the distinctions between Judaism and Gentileism, right, permeates the whole book. He's constantly, so just watch how many times he'll, he's talking to the Jews and he switches to the Gentiles. Watch, watch, watch the Jew-Gentile thing. You'll see that as you go. But then I want you to see something really important that you could easily miss or misunderstand, okay? Go up to 2.13. As in the midst of his case against mankind, against the Jews, and against the Gentiles. He's making the case that there's something wrong with all of us, pervasively. Those that grew up with the law, those that grew up with their ancestors running around naked in the woods. A pagan, doesn't matter. Like, something is wrong. But watch what he says. This is very important. In 2.13, he says, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. Who are those that hear the law, by the way? That this is back to the Jew-Gentile thing. He says, it's not those who hear the law, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then he's going to, you can see him immediately begin to talk about the Gentiles who do not have the law, that do the things required by the law, da 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 okay? All this stuff. You could walk out of that and think, oh, okay, the Jews think that they're, that they're redeemed simply because they're, they know the Ten Commandments. They've been circumcised. Their father is Abraham. They're in the club. And Paul is saying, mm, that's not how that works. And then he says, it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And it might be that there are Gentiles, and it might be that there are Jews that are like, oh, okay, I get it. It's not because you're in the club. It's because you're a good little boy. Okay? I want you to hear this. I'm going to read it five times. No, I'll give you three times because we don't have that much time. Listen to this, okay? It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. It's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, really quick, we're going to skip this whole argument, get to his conclusion, and I want you to listen to this. He says in 320, by the way, back in chapter 2, what he said is, it's not those who hear the law, right, who are righteous in God's sight. It's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And in 3.20 he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. He set up a theory in chapter 2. 
Sure, no problem. Just live a perfect life and you can just march into heaven when you die. No problem. And then he spends the next chapter and a half saying, you know that will never happen, right? You know that if you think that you're going to earn heaven by your obedience, good luck. It's going to be very, very difficult. Okay? You could read chapter 2 and think, oh, so Paul is teaching works righteousness. And to a certain extent, he is. He's teaching the theory that all you have to do is get everything right all day, every day, and you're golden. And then we realize, ah, I don't think that's going to work very well. And his conclusion is no one, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This is an enormously important understanding for Paul. To the extent that we grew up thinking that all I have to do is be good, be good, do good. Many people believe in a gross error that the core message of Christianity is be good, do good. And Paul is saying with perfect clarity, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And as soon as he says, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. That's when he goes into what I would say is the most important paragraph in the entire Bible, 321. But, huge contrast. It was never going to work. Your plan is destined to fail. But, there's another plan. And that other plan, notice the preposition. It says, but, now a righteousness from God. That word from is enormously significant. It does not say a righteousness to God. Every other faith system, the inclinations of your heart, is that your job is running around doing good things, being good, and then say, see, I did all these good things and I offer to you my goodness. And Paul's saying, your hands are empty. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. The gospel is not about a righteousness that we offer to God. It is about a righteousness that God gives to us. It is from him and to us. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law. You didn't earn it. You didn't manufacture it. It is a foreign righteousness outside of yourself. It is an imputed righteousness credited to you. This whole thing is like, everybody's wrong about everything, right? Paul is saying it is completely different from what you think. It is imputed, it is foreign, it is credited, it's a gift. And your way of doing it, your idea that you can earn this, and that you never had a chance. And he's going to spend the rest of this book proving that case, okay? So notice what he's doing in chapter 2, how it connects to chapter 3, and the case that he's building. Good enough? And the bus keeps rolling. All right. Chapter 4. What he's going to do in chapter 4, this is very interesting. He's going to say, I'm not making this up. He's saying Abraham knew this. He's going to say David knew this. He picks two of the most significant. I mean, maybe you could pick Moses. He'll pick, he's going to save some Moses stuff till chapter 10. But he's basically picking Abraham and David. I think the big three are Abraham, David, and Moses. If you want to make something be really like super Jewish, like... Abraham, David, and Moses are your guys. He picks Abraham and David, and he says, look what Abraham said. And he quotes this famous line from Genesis. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he goes on, and he unpacks that a little bit. And he says, listen, David says the same thing. Don't stone me as a heretic. You should have noticed this. If you were a good reader of, your old, of the Hebrew scriptures, you would have seen this. And I'm, just, I'm only showing you what they were saying the entire time. 
He proves it from Abraham. He proves it from David. Now, what is, remember I said this a few minutes ago, uh, he's talking to two audiences the whole time, right? What are the two audiences throughout Romans? <laughs> Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. So right now, we just made a super Jewish case, right? Abraham, David. And how do you make a Gentile case for this? It's not like you're going to be like, you know, some pagan philosopher, some rock worshiper. You know, he can't do that. So he still wants to talk to the Gentiles. And so watch what he does. It's so brilliant. Abraham is like literally, he's the father of the Jews. But watch what he's going to do next. He says in verse 9, 4, 9, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, i.e. for the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, i.e. the Gentiles? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. But he says, hey, but do you remember when that happened? Remember when that happened to Abraham? Under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? And he says, it was not after, it was before. Do you realize the implication of this? Basically, he's like, he's like listen to what he's saying. He's saying, Abraham, the father of the Jews, when he, when he came to this understanding of an imputed righteousness, was more Gentile than he was Jewish. He was uncircumcised at the moment that happened. And then, he, and then his conclusion here down in verse 11 is, So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who are only circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul is such a brilliant and interesting and clever argument. He's intensely interested that the Jews would recognize that they need a Messiah because their knowledge of the law is not sufficient to save. And that the Gentiles can have a Messiah, even though they are not part of this covenant community, they can be brought in. Okay, it just permeates, he's always back and forth between these things. Okay, I know we're going quick. How you doing? Found the big, as you go back through, this is what you're looking for in chapter two. Watch for in chapter three. Watch for in chapter four. Questions, comments, anybody need something before we go on? Taylor. First reference for chapter four. Uh, let's see, for chapter four, I would maybe highlight, if you're doing this, a whole bunch of things. So verse one, verse six, verse nine. Verse one is, what, what did Abraham discover? Verse six is, David says the same thing. And then verse nine is where he gets into this whole thing of, it's for the circumcised and the uncircumcised, because Abraham was uncircumcised when the party began. Cool, cool? Anybody else? We good? All right, what happens in chapter five? Check this out. This is... Uh, I don't know. This is definitely top three. This is definitely top five weirdest things that happen in the book of Romans. Okay. Maybe, but it's up there. Okay. Go to, go to 512. He's building this case and he says this, and it's so strange. It's so not obvious that Paul interrupts himself mid thought and doesn't pick up his thought for quite some time. Paul does this relatively often. Sometimes Paul's communication is like these big, long things. And sometimes he'll, he'll start to go, so, uh, hang on a second. And then he goes back over here and he kind of unpacks the thing. That's what he does here. And so it's confusing. But look what happens that is such a showstopper for Paul. Go to 512. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. And then he interrupts himself. 
Whenever you say, therefore, because of this, also that, he says, because of this, he says, he never gets to the also that. He stops his train of thought. The reason he stops his train, this, 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 this could be an entire Sunday school class. We're going to do this quick. When he says, because all sinned, do you know what he means? Therefore, right, death into the world through one man, death through sin, death came to all men because all sinned. What do you think that means? Okay, Jew and Gentile, what, Nancy? I did, I saw I can read your lips. Yeah, I just need somebody to play. What do you, there's, there's something very obvious, but wrong, okay? What, is this, what do you think it means when he says because all sinned? Dan? He's talking original sin. He's talking original sin? Adam sinned, and that sin therefore gets imputed to all. That's exactly right. Okay, now here's the thing. Dan is a little too smart, okay? What you're supposed to say is that everybody does bad things, right? Which we do. But that is not what Paul means. What Paul means is what Dan said, okay? And, and Paul knows this is, an out, this is an enormously outrageous thing to say. If I were to say to you, everybody sins, does anybody have a problem with that? Has anybody watched the news? Has anyone been outside? Has anyone been married? Like, like, we all know this. That is not what Paul is talking about. As he goes on and he makes this case, and I won't, I won't fully make his case, he is claiming that when Adam sinned, Jan Fear sinned. That's what he is saying. He's saying when Adam sinned, you sinned. That you were in some sense present and are in some sense culpable for what we're going to get theological here, your federal head did. And he's going to unpack this for the rest of this section. From 5.12 on, he's building the case for what we call federal headship. That what your representative, Adam, did is imputed to you. Death entered the world by one man, one sin. He's going to say it over and over and over again. I won't say it. You can read it. When you get there, like, put down some weird thing about federal headship and then go slow when you get there, okay? You are guilty because of what Adam did, okay? Now, here's what you have to understand, though. Before you say, that's stupid, and that shouldn't be the way the world works, and I don't like the concept of federal headship, okay? If there's some, some part of your mind, that your soul, that's just like, ah, I don't like that. Slow down, slow down. Don't do that. Do not rule out federal headship because federal headship is your only hope in all the world, what Paul is going to say is, what your representative does impacts you. And if your federal head sins, he brings death to all. But you can trade teams and you can have a new federal head. And what he does will also be credited to you. Just as the death of Adam was credited to you, the life of Christ can be credited to you. And if you want to deny the possibility that your representative can impute something to you based on his actions, then you are necessarily saying that the righteousness of Christ can also not be credited to you. This is huge stuff. This is massive, deep theology. That's what he's doing in chapter 5. So when you get there, you might want to slow that down and really trace through what is he saying? What what did Adam do, and how does it impact me? And how does that parallel to 
what Christ has done and how that impacts me. And if we understand this, then we would find the urgent imperative of life is to jump on Team Jesus, where his work can be credited to you. People ask the question, well, what makes you think that Jesus is the only way? We talked about this just this week at, at, at Feast, that Jesus is the only way. Well, I don't know. Maybe that nobody else ever died for me, that nobody else has the capacity to die for billions, that nobody else is qualified to be a new federal head, that nobody else rose from the dead and is exalted as king over all things, that nobody else loves his enemies and mercifully welcomes. It's like, who is his competition? Who offers anything remotely parallel to what he has? And what Paul is addressing here is this, head, this idea of federal headship. You've already got one. His name is Adam. That did not work out too well. And by the way, if you don't like it, if you're not happy with the idea that you're, you, know, you get blamed for Adam, listen, you've added so much to the, to the list, it's kind of ridiculous, okay? Like, <laughs> sure, we're, we're going to blame you for Adam and about nine billion other things besides. And if you are in Christ, he will erase all of it, not just Adam's, but everything you've added to it. And he will forgive you all the way back. This is what we're offering. That's what chapter 5 is about. Okay? So far so good? All right, let's keep going. Chapter 6, Romans in a blitz. In Romans 6, he's going to ask the same question twice. Do you know what it is? What is the question of Romans 6? He asks something like, 85, 900 million questions in Romans, okay? But in Romans 6, there's really the same question. He gives it a double tap because it's a massive thing. Robin? Is it that should we, because we have imputed uh, righteousness to us, can we just go ahead and say? Exactly right. Exactly right. So look at it. Look at it in verse 1. Romans 6, 1. What shall we... Okay, after he's basically beat into our heads for these... So he's up through chapter 5, he's like, it's an imputed righteousness. It's a gifted righteousness. You can't earn it. You don't have to do anything for it. It's not about your goodness. It's a gift. It's foreign. It's imputed. It's yours. The logical conclusion is, oh, hang on a second. You're telling me I got to get out of jail free card so I can do anything I want? And then maybe, not only that, but what if, like, if God gets credit for being so gracious, I could give him even more credit for being even more gracious by doing even more wicked things he would look good. I would have fun. It's a win-win, okay? That's what he's, that's what he's saying, right? So in 6.1, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. And then he says it again down in 6.15. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And chapter 6 is Paul's exploration of that question. How do people who do have a get-out-of-jail-free card not become incredibly licentious. If I know that I, I will never stand condemned, why would I not just go and just live a riotous life? And Paul says tw- both times, well, what's his answer to the question? He said twice. NIV, I don't know, you may have a depth different in a different translation, but what's his answer to it? Like by no means, by no means. What's the ESV, like may it never be or something? May it never be, okay? He's like, no, 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 no. If you understand grace, grace actually incentivizes righteousness. I understand why you're thinking that. That makes sense. That's why I'm addressing it. This is all Paul. But he says, no, no, no. And in, in Romans 6, he's going to walk through why is it that Christians who rightly understand the grace of Christ do not become the most immoral, licentious people and 
necessarily, the corollary to that is, why, what has gone wrong when we find Christians who have become the most immoral, licentious people? What did they miss? What are they misunderstanding? And if we want to take the volume down just a little bit on that, and we look at our own lives, not, not on a whole scale, but on any given moment, any given week, any given day, when I find myself becoming immoral, and I find myself disregarding the holiness of God, Romans 6 tells me what just happened. Something broke, something, a gear is loose. What is the thing that should link me as a recipient of grace into me, a person who lives a righteous life? Romans 6 is all about exploring the connection between my understanding and my experience of the gospel and the necessary ipso facto righteousness that follows. And when I find in my own life there's a bridge out, Romans 6 tells me where to look. Okay, So this is, a, I think, an enormously important and practical question. We're not really getting into the application yet until chapter 12, but the theological foundation for all of the application from chapter 12 on is embedded in chapter 6. This is a passage worth, this is a hike worth going on. Like, spend some time in Romans 6. There was a hand. Robin, be nice and loud, please. The last verse of 6, when I was reading it, there was a, a little bit of confusion for me. It was, it's talking about, you know, the fruits of unrighteousness and the fruits of righteousness that, have been, that God has given to us. And it says, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification, and it, its end is eternal life. Yes. The sanctification in our lives is what leading to eternal life. Okay, very good. All right. Yes, okay. So let's see. So I'll give, I probably won't be able to give you a full treatment of this, but let me, I, I'll, I'll try to dispel a particular Christian understanding that I think is false, okay? So sanctification has a, has a friend. They, sanctification has a, 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 a companion. Do you know what the two things are that we tend to talk about? Sanctification and... Justification, very good, okay. So I will often draw, imagine a chart. Imagine I anticipated this question, okay. We've got this chart, right? Vertical is righteousness, and across the thing, whatever this is, horizontal, is time, okay. Here's Robin Conrad. You should have known her before she was a Christian. Incredibly evil, okay. So <laughs> wicked, wicked little Robin just doing wicked Robin things. And then at a moment in time, she came to faith in Christ, and God imputed righteousness to her. All of his goodness credited to her. All of her badness placed on him. And in a moment, right here, there's this thing that happens. And bam! You are justified. And you are righteous. Your goodness just skyrocketed in a moment in time. Per your justification. His goodness on you. And you are like, what happened to Robin? Okay? Judicially. Legally. In Christ. And at that same time, we're down here. Here's a little bad Robin. Conversion. Boom. What happens is this diagonal line starts slowly working its way up. Then she had a really bad month, okay? And then it was up. And there's this trend line as you are being sanctified and you are in fact in the actual universe for all to see. You are becoming what he declared you to be. Making sense? So now there's like two Robins. There's the Robin who is dressed in the righteousness of Christ, perfect in the sight of the Father. And then there's the Robin who is increasingly, but imperfectly, and faultingly, but genuinely approximating what Christ has already declared over you. We got justification, we've got sanctification. Everybody cool? Cool, cool, cool? Okay, now, here's the thing. 
we have a very clear sense, generally in evangelicalism, that sanctification is icing on the cake, but frankly irrelevant, and everything is predicated on our justification. Yes? That's not quite biblically accurate, okay? Which I know is very disarming and very, like, wait, what? Right? I absolutely believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All, I'm, a, I'm reformed. All of those things are true. However, when we do that, we have a tendency to really treat sanctification as an also-ran that is really ultimately inconsequential. And I do believe absolutely that all of our righteousness that we're actually growing into as we are changed and transformed is a um, result, not a requirement, is a consequence, not a condition, fully. However, it must be present, right? Sometimes we'll try to do this little equation. Faith plus works equals heaven. And that's a bad equation. That's not the way the universe works. It is not faith plus works is going to cause us to be saved. It's not the right answer. But then we will sometimes solve that. Evangelicals will solve it by saying, yeah, get rid of the works. Faith equals heaven. We're just saying faith alone. Woohoo! It doesn't matter how we live. The biblical answer is faith equals heaven plus good works. It will be present. There will be transformation. And there is. A, and Paul's going to make this case more in chapter... We'll get there in chapter 8. We'll unpack, we'll, you might unpack it. We won't unpack it. But in chapter 8, he really tries to explore... Follow the argument carefully in chapter 8. And you'll see that our sanctification, i.e. the degree to which we are cooperating with the Spirit of God... As he works out our sin. As he causes us to trust him more. As we reorder our loves is impacting eternity. It matters. Okay? That's about as far as I can take it today and still faithful to what I'm doing, but that's, that's a, a paradigm for you to, like, work out. It's complex, to be sure, but there's some categories for you. Okay? All right. All right. Let's keep going. So, chapter 6. Are you guys all right on chapter 6? I know this is blitzy. Chapter 7. What's the theme of chapter 7? Do you know what it's about? Why do I do that? Chapter 7, if you go through... Oh, Catherine? It's like sin and, and not sin. And it's I do the things I want to do. Yeah. And I don't want to do it and I don't do whatever. Yeah, the most, one of the more famous passages in Roman because it's so linguistically such a... Such a what do we call them? Tongue tire? What's that? What do we call them? Tongue twister? Such a tongue twister is, is, is here in chapter 7. Um, and we're going we're gonna to head to that in just a minute. We're going to get there at the end of chapter 7. As he goes through... It's all about death. Chapter 7, if you, if you go through Romans 7, death, 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 die, 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 alive, dead, 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 alive, okay? He says in verse 4, verse four so my brothers, you also died to the law, right? Verse 6, by dying to what once bound to us, we've been released from this. And he's going to walk through this whole understanding. This is all he's trying to, he's still, chapter 7, every chapter follows the, the previous one, but chapter 7, he's still working out the, why, am I, why don't I sin? If I'm under grace, shouldn't I be allowed to like sin with impunity? Didn't you just say, I have full amnesty? And if I have full amnesty, can't I just live in full amnesty? Chapter 7, he's working out his argument. And he's like, no, 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 listen. You died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? And now he's really going to go after the doctrine of our union with Christ. We've talked about this a little bit perhaps in the past. Chapter 6 lays the foundation really for our union with Christ. But every good thing you have, every good thing you have is because you are united to Christ. And you are united to Christ 
both in his death and in his life. This is what baptism is all about. Baptism is not about water, right? It's about union with Christ. And that's in Romans 6. I didn't say this, but Romans 6 is the foundational chapter on baptism. In chapter 7, he's, he really double-clicks on this idea that if I've died with Christ, I will not live any longer in my old world. That stuff's over. That's past tense. That's B.C. days for me. And I'm a new person. My life has been changed in Romans. In, in Romans 7, I'm new because I'm aligned to him. I'm united to him. And then Paul says, and yet... I still don't know what to do, right? And you get this angst and this frustration. Uh, theologians debate, is Paul pretending here not to be a Christian? Or is he describing the experience of a Christian? Go to 714. This is the most angsty, frustrated, honest depiction. In fact, I would say, I come down on the side, I believe that Paul is describing a present reality for the Apostle Paul. Some would say, that's impossible. It can't be. And I'm like, I don't think you've met a Christian before. Okay? Here's what he says. I, verse 15, we'll start. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. And as it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but sin, the sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I, oh, I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Okay, now it's so strong that it, people are tempted to say, Paul doesn't mean any of that. He's describing life before he was a Christian. I think they're wrong. He's talking about his, his present reality. He wrote Romans for crying out loud. He knows that if we died with Christ, we won't live in our sin. He knows that we not, he knows all of that. But he also knows what it's like to actually be a human being. Yeah. And he just wants to take a fork and jam out his eyes. Right? He's like, I don't know what to do anymore. Right? This should be, as you're reading through it, what's supposed to happen is you, Romans is meant to be an emotional roller coaster. Because for Paul, it is an emotional roller coaster. He begins with this blistering case in chapters 1 and 2 and into chapter 3. You're supposed to completely despair. Like, I'm screwed. There's nothing I could do. What can I possibly do? And you are, you, he brings you to the brink of hopelessness. And he says, but hang on, because there's another plan. There's another way we can do this. And then the hope of the gospel rises. And then he starts to work out the theological implications of this throughout the book. And do you understand this? And you see what this means. And your mind is split. And you're trying to understand how this all works out. And then he starts talking about how in Christ we're not going to sin anymore. And now you're like, oh, shoot. I hope nobody's watching me because I agree with what you're saying. But I, if you had a videotape of my life, it would be so humiliating. If you had a videotape of my thoughts, I'd throw myself off a bridge. And now you're like, maybe I better, I get it. Maybe in, in Christianity, I get it. You just have to pretend. 
just fake it, right? Just pretend that everything's great and that your life is all in order and you are not, now that you have a savior, you don't really need him that much anymore and everything's fine. And then mercifully, chapter seven breaks in and you're like, oh, thank God. Because like, this is more true for me. There's something is wrong with me, right? Do you feel the, this is what he's done for us throughout this book. But he doesn't leave us there. Chapter 7 sets us up for chapter 8. And you could make a case that chapter 8 is the theological climax of the book. It is certainly the bridge from theology to application. Okay? So we're coming out of chapter 7 into chapter 8. And do you guys remember from looking at your document, or maybe you've just seen this before, who's the hero of chapter 8? This is the Spirit of God. We are at the church of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Somebody... 35 years ago, thought that that would be a good idea. Quig, I don't know who, right? All right? And, there's, and what, what's embedded in our name is some, what could be for us as a community is a sense that we understand that we don't have a chance. Theological insight is not going to work, right? Information, which is like my favorite thing in the world, is not going to work. What is going to work is if the Spirit of God lives in you. If you, if you go through chapter 8, you're going to see over and over and over again, he says, when we get to that point where we, I get the God, I understand imputed righteousness, I understand what I need, I understand what he's given me, I understand the implications of this, but it still isn't working. I don't know how to do this. That's where chapter 8 shows up. And over and over and over again, verse, I mean, just, if you go through, the Spirit is everywhere. Chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, I'm not chapter, verse 2, 4, 5, 6, 9, 9, 9, 10, 11, 11, 12, 13, 13, 14, 15, 16. He's everywhere, okay? So when you get to chapter 8 in your Bible, just underline the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. And then go back and be like, what is he saying? What have I missed all of my days? What, what do I have in the Holy Spirit? Because I don't know how to speak in tongues and I don't know what else there is, so what is he talking about, right? Follow the argument. This is, I'm telling you, it is the bridge from all the theology to how this matters in our lives is embedded in Romans 8. Romans 8 is worth understanding. And it ends, of course, with the stuff that we know. We like the end of it. The very, very end, he says, well, kind of towards the thing, things like this, Romans 8, 28. But we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God, God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against them whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. By the way, if you think that the answer, Christ, that the words Christ Jesus is the answer to the question, who is he that condemns, you misunderstand the argument. He's not saying, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus. He's saying, who can condemn? Christ Jesus is interceding for us, right? 
He's mentioning Jesus not as the answer to the condemner. He is your defense attorney. He is your protector. He's interceding for you. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to ask you to do something today. When you go home, go on Google or go to YouTube and just type in these words. John Piper, Romans 8, return. There is a recording of John Piper simply reading without comment Romans 8. Pretty sure from memory. It is spectacular. He does nothing other than read the text, but he reads it. I'm just telling you, just go get it. Go YouTube, John Piper, Romans 8, go. It is, it's word for, it's simply Romans 8, but it is read so well that he makes all these things come out that you might not have seen if you're just reading it yourself. You should go listen to John Piper read Romans 8. Or Romans 8. It is extraordinary. Okay, here's the final thing. Then I got to go. That's the theology. You got it? As you go through, this is, the, this, is the, this is Yosemite Valley. This is the highest and the best place of Scripture. This thing, if you understand the argument that he's going through here, the enormous benefit to you, the benefit to you will just be extraordinary. And we really, I want you to get that. You're going to get it better by your own personal study, just slogging through it and discovering these things, okay? But I want to do one more thing because I didn't really get to it last. It would have fit better last week, but I didn't have time, and so I'm going to shove it in right now. Go to chapter 16. Just want you to see something here that I think is really important, and I would be remiss to not highlight this for you. By the time you get to Romans 16, Roman, you're going to feel like blah, blah, blah. Okay? We followed all the theology, the first seven or eight chapters. We followed this whole Israel thing in the middle. We got in all the application in 12 through 15. And chapter 16 is very historically contextualized comments to his friends in Rome. And you could be like, I think normally when, when like people do like preaching series on Roman, we kind of stop at chapter 15. Because like who really cares about chapter? It's just like a bunch of people we don't know that are dead. And what do they have to say to us, right? False, okay? All scripture is God-breathed, right? There's something in all of it. And one thing that I'll just pull out of this for you that I want you to see in 16 is very important to me. Romans 16:1, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, servant of the church, in Sancria, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help that she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. What the, do anybody know what that means? She delivered it. She delivered the letter, okay? So here's what happened. Paul writes the most important thing ever written by human beings, and he turns and he finds this woman, Phoebe, and says, Phoebe, deliver the letter. When Phoebe gets to Rome, she doesn't only just hand the mail over, but almost certainly she reads Romans. The first time Romans was ever, writ, was ever read, was ever heard, almost certainly it was read in a female voice. Phoebe was the one that Paul handed the task to. Okay? Not only that, Paul's going to go on and he's going he's to affirm Priscilla and Aquila, this married couple, fellow workers in Christ who risked their lives. He's going to, in verse 6, affirm Mary, who worked very hard for you. In verse 7, Junius, we don't honestly know if Junius was male or female. There's an assumption female, but it's not a very strong assumption. Junius might have been a woman. Whoever it is, 
Junius and Andronicus are, quote, outstanding among the apostles. That doesn't mean they were among the 12. Jesus names the apostles. But it could mean that apostles simply means missionary. It could mean that they are great missionaries. Or it could mean that in the, in the, in the uh, reputation, that the, that, the, that the 12 hold them in very, very high regard. He's going to go back down in verse 12. Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who worked hard in the Lord. Persis, another woman who worked very hard in the Lord. Rufus and his mom, who's been a mother to Paul. Nereus' sister. Romans 16 is riddled with women that Paul loved. Men too, to be sure. But riddled with women that Paul trusted in ministry, that were partners in ministry, that he adored, that he loved, that he commended, to whom he entrusted this solemn responsibility of delivering and almost certainly reading Romans, okay? Paul believed that primary leadership in the church was reserved for men. When you read 1 Timothy, when you read Titus, it's very, very clear. In this, he's consistent with Jesus, who chose 12 men to be his disciples and then affirmed 12 men to be his apostles. Paul holds to uh, a, a view of ministry and, uh, and leadership in the church and in the family that clearly sees that men and women have distinct and complementary roles. Sometimes, however, that has been thought both by proponents of that understanding and by opponents of that understanding to mean that women have no role and they should just stay at home and bake us cookies. And while I'm grateful when anybody bakes me cookies, male or female, it is grossly out of step with what we see in the New Testament. It is true that God has reserved the role of presbyter or elder and therefore pastor, priest, as you will, to men. I think, that, I think there's a very strong biblical case for that. But there is no following implication that the fields for women in ministry are ripe and rich and full. Paul's letters, Paul's ministry is chock full of significant women making significant contributions on the front lines of the proclamation and advancement of the gospel. You with me? It's everywhere in his writings. This is consistent with Jesus himself. Well, I think I showed you when we were in Luke that Jesus raised support. His ministry was funded and fueled by these women who provided for them out of their own means. So it's just crazy to me. I think the scriptures are reliable. The scriptures are true. And I do, I do think that God has called men to primary leadership in the home. I think he's called men to primary leadership in the church. That does not mean that there are not enormous, necessary, crucial roles that women can and must fill. And so if you've ever heard in a complementarian framework, which is what I'm arguing for, men and women are complementary, something that denigrates the role that women can play, I, I, I beg your mercy that you've been lied to. It's just not true. That we are allowed, we can, we must, I think, uphold whatever restrictions God puts on any of us, this, the, the, the orders that God has put, and we, every one of us must be running as hard as we can to the fulfillment of the Great Commission, to the blessing of the world, to the proclamation of the gospel. There is, there is, we need everybody on the field, we need everybody playing in the roles that God has assigned going after it. And I hope that uh, anybody that has ever told you otherwise, or if you've come to believe otherwise, that you might let the, the lessons of Romans 16 be among the things that persuade you otherwise. All right, good enough? In a blitz, that's Romans. Uh, more next week. <laughs>